says the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth beloved I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers for I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth beloved you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who've borne witness of your love before the church if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God you will do well because they went forth for his namesake taking nothing from the Gentiles therefore we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth and father we just bow our hearts before you now and ask as we continue to worship you as we sang and prayed and given to you worship in other ways help us to continue now in an attitude of worship by giving you our attention and our heart and we pray that you would write your will onto the fleshly tablet of our heart this morning through the word of god that you'd prepare us help us to be receptive and alert and able to hear and even lord desirous to want to hear what you would say to us personally by the ministry of your holy spirit through the word of god so speak to us now lord by your spirit we pray in jesus name and everyone said amen amen you may be seated you know i think to some degree everybody on some level tends to imitate what they see in other people and i think the question therefore becomes is who do you tend to imitate who do I tend to imitate, maybe periodically or maybe even to some great degree? To imitate is defined as to follow something or someone as a pattern, a model, an example. It's when you produce a copy or you reproduce perhaps what you have observed. And right in the middle of this letter that we began this morning here, we'll see it next week, John gives his really one singular command. There's actually only one direct command in the letter. It's actually in verse 11. If you look there with me, he says, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Now, in verses 1 through 8, which we're going to look at together this morning, John is basically commending Gaius, or Gaius, and I don't know exactly how his name seems more comfortable to say Gaius to me uh, as a guy name, but uh, Gaius is someone that John knows, and he's writing this personal letter to him. And as he's writing this personal letter to him, He's writing and he begins the letter, you can see in verses 1 to 8, for really just kind of commending him and praising him for the good way that he is living as a servant of Jesus Christ and giving to his readers a description of really what you could say then therefore is a good example. In Gaius, he gives us a good example. His life was a good example and John was commending him for his life, his character, his conduct. And therefore, he points out aspects of Gaius's good character and his good conduct that really would be wise to observe 
and to imitate. As he said, don't imitate what's evil. He'll talk about that next week in Demetrius. But he's going to say, imitate what's good. And so Gaius gives to us a great example of how to imitate things that are good as he was living as a good way as a servant of Christ. So let's take note of some of these things in his life and seek to imitate what we can see and learn. If you look with me back in verse 1 as the letter opens, it says, the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. So the letter begins with an introduction of the writer or the author, and it also has there whom it's addressed to. Now, as we said before in studying New Testament letters, in those days, in the ancient days, when they wrote letters, very difficult, uh, different, excuse me, than what we do today, uh, they would typically, the author, introduce themselves at the front of the letter. Usually when we sign letters or write emails today at the end of it, we sign our name or put our signature there. Well, a lot of times letters were written on scrolls. Uh, and, and of course, this is a short letter, but some of the larger letters were written on scrolls. So it was very difficult. You have to kind of unroll the whole thing to see at the end who the letter was from. And like most of us, depending upon who it's from, may determine your interest in reading further. Uh, so some people may read the elder and go, nah, I don't want to read that one. And sometimes, you, you know, you, you find out who it's from. That makes a big difference. It may excite you. Wow, this person wrote me a letter. I care about what they're going to have to say. And it becomes very meaningful. So here this introduction comes. The letter was from the Apostle John. We know that from the similar language in First and Second John, that this is John writing this letter as well. And the Apostle John also wrote the Gospel of John. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and then also the book of Revelation. And we believe at this time, at this point of writing, he's probably the last surviving apostle. And he identifies himself just like he did, we saw last week in 2nd John, by just referring to himself as the elder. Now, as I said last time, that could be a reference to his age chronologically. He was quite old at this time. Or it could be a reference to his spiritual office. And John, we know, did hold the office or spiritual position of being an elder or, or a spiritual leader. That's a term in the New Testament for a pastor or a spiritual leader or overseer in the church. And we see who the letter's addressed to. This letter is addressed to the beloved Gaius, John says, whom I love in the truth. So take note, it's a personal letter. One of really only two personal letters we have in the entire New Testament. Most letters are written to churches, Colossians, Ephesians, but Philemon and the letter of 3 John were written to individuals. They're very personal. And Gaius was a common male name in that time period. There are other men by this name in the New Testament. This could be him, one of those other individuals, or this could be just a completely different individual. It was a name like John or Fred today, just a very common name in those days. Uh, we don't know exactly, but what we do know, as we can tell from the language, is this was someone that the Apostle John definitely had a personal connection to. You can just tell by the language, the way that he writes it, that this is someone that he has a close relationship with and it's someone who has a really great love for because you notice the language he uses there in, in verse 1, he calls him the beloved Gaius. Again, the word beloved is basically just a term that is, speaks of the idea is kind of my dear one or my dear brother, the idea is kind of saying there. Someone who's very dear to me. And then he also says, whom I love in the truth. So this was someone that John had come to love among the ranks 
of following the truth of Jesus Christ, just a fellow brother in the Lord who he loved deeply and had a close bond with. Verse 2, he then says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. So he opens the letter with really just a very gracious greeting, uh, just kind of a way to express what was a common greeting found in Greco-Roman letters. Uh, what's written there in verse 2 is found in other Greco-Roman letters, the same kind of language. And it would be similar today as sort of saying, I hope all is going well with you. That's kind of how maybe we might open up a letter. I hope everything is going great with you and the family. Now take note in verse 2 here, important to understand what John is saying and what John is not saying here. Very important. John was not teaching a principle in verse 2 there. He's not teaching a principle such as the importance of needing to prosper and always be in health. That's not what he's saying. Like in many letters, as I said, he's proclaiming a kind blessing and really expressing a greeting. He's informing his brother what he hoped for him and really telling him kind of, hey, this is what I'm praying for you, that you'd be doing well in this way. Notice the language there when you read it in context. He says, my hope or prayer for you, brother, is that you may prosper in all things, that is your health and your activities and your material life. But notice, big word, Two words, just as I pray that you would prosper in everything in your life and be doing really well. Hope you're doing well. Just as he says, your soul, that is his inner spiritual life, was already prospering. He's saying to the same degree that your inward life, your spiritual life is prospering and doing so well, my brother. I pray that your whole life would prosper like that. I pray your whole life would do as wonderful as your spiritual life is doing. That's the idea of the language there. One translation renders verse 2, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. I bring this up because please understand, John is not proclaiming here in verse 2 nor teaching a doctrine of prosperity which is unfortunately what some false teachers among the church today do. Prosperity teaching, prosperity doctrine is basically saying, in essence, that it is God's will for believers to always prosper financially, to always prosper materially, and to always be in good physical health, perfect health, and experience prosperity in all things. And if you are truly spiritual, then this should be your experience. And if you are truly right with God and you are truly spiritual, you will prosper materially and financially, and you should always be in perfect health. And together with that, if not... That is, if you're not prospering financially, if you're not prospering materially, or if you're for some reason not in good health or having health problems, they would say the reason, therefore, is there's a lack of faith in your life. Or there's some undealt with sin in your life. And that's the reason you're not prospering financially, or that's the reason why you're having some health struggles. And those who use this verse, and sadly some do, those who use verse 2 here in this letter, or really any of what's being conveyed there as a proof text 
for that kind of teaching, let me just say, is a major misconstruing of what the Bible is saying there. Uh, let me just say further, the whole doctrine of prosperity teaching is a misconstruing of the entirety of what the Word of God teaches as a whole. The Bible does not teach that spirituality is reflected by a person's material or financial wealth or by their physical health condition. In fact, the Bible teaches that a very spiritually healthy person who's in very close right relationship with God can be living in very poor conditions. How do you explain Christians in third world countries? Many of them love Jesus way more than we do. They're living with nothing and willing to have their head cut off. And they love Jesus. And they have nothing. They were born into nothing. Why aren't they? It doesn't line up with the teaching of the Word of God as a whole. And it's a complete inconsistency. You can be in right relationship with God and have poor health. Have health issues. Not be recovering from your health problems. We see examples of this throughout the Word of God as well. Paul the Apostle and others. That's a whole other teaching. I should probably stop there because it could be a sermon itself. But John here in verse 2 is just graciously blessing and praying in a hopeful attitude that his brother would just be doing really well. That's what he's doing. He's greeting him saying, man, I really hope you're doing well. I hope that you are doing good. He wants to see his friend just doing well and prospering. Look, that's just loving. He's just expressing his care for him. Now, what I do see and what he is saying is apparently Gaius was already prospering in his spiritual condition. Because when you notice the language, please look at it again in verse 2 in the text. He says, brother, I hope you would prosper in other things just as, that is in the same manner or to the same degree, he says, that your soul was prospering. Apparently, Gaius was a really healthy and prospering man in his spiritual condition. His soul was prospering for John to use that illustrative language. One thing we learn as a good example from Gaius that we ought to imitate is this. He was focused on prospering spiritually. This was a man who lived his life in a way that his focus was prospering spiritually. He was a man who cared about the condition of his soul and his inner life. And I would say probably to a greater degree than his physical life. Than his material life. He prioritized becoming and remaining healthy spiritually before all other things. He was prospering in his soul. His spiritual health was prospering. He maintained apparently spiritual disciplines that it does require to grow and make progress in your spiritual life and in your spiritual health. Things like regularly spending time in the word of God and letting it speak to you and teach you and correct you and letting God's voice be heard in your life and give you instruction and guidance and direction how to live for him. Spending time in prayer and fellowship with God and, and pouring out your heart and listening to what God would say to you, worshiping the Lord. You know, these disciplines of the, the Christian life that are essential if we're going to grow, if we're going to be healthy. If we're going to mature spiritually, Gaius had become a mature godly man who was healthy spiritually and he was prospering in the things of the Lord. Would to God we have more of that going on. Would to God that we'd imitate that a little bit more. 
Everybody in American culture wants to prosper in the things of the world. What if we all of a sudden want to prosper in the things of the Lord? And we wanted to, to prosper in our soul and that we put that you know, emphasis upon our life to be fruitful and effective for the Lord and prosper in those things. What a good pattern to imitate. Imitate what's good. Well, there's something really good to imitate right there, to focus on prospering spiritually just like Gaius. The Bible tells us in Jude, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. Build, develop, grow. It tells us as well, Peter writes, that we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul tells young Timothy, as an older, mature, spiritual man, talking to a younger man, he says, Timothy, exercise yourself toward godliness. Again, using these same terms, building, growing, exercise toward the spiritual life. To do what we can to prosper and be healthy spiritually. Let me say this, and, and I want you to just ponder this for a moment before we move on. A great way to take inventory. What if, what if, like what's said in verse 2 here, what if the rest of your life was prospering to the exact same degree and condition as your spiritual life? That's interesting to think about. What if the rest of your life prospered to the same degree your spiritual life prospered? Some people might be bankrupt. What if your spiritual health and, and, and how you prospered in your spiritual health was the same degree that you prospered in your financial or material wealth? And what, what, you know, some of us, again, th these are very interesting things to think about. That, that if our rest of our life prospered to the same degree as our spiritual life, what a great way to take inventory in our lives on occasion. John then says, verse 3, writing to Gaius onward, he says, For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy, he says, verse 4, than to hear that my children walk in truth. So John expresses how it brought him incredible pleasure when he got report from others, how Gaius, notice, was living out the truth of God's word. Apparently, some other people who knew both John and Gaius had traveled, they had encountered and met with John, and as they were having conversation, Gaius's name came up, and when his name came up, it seems that connected to that, when they spoke of Gaius, they testified to John about him. And notice what they testified to John about his friend Gaius. The testimony of Gaius, verse 3, see it there? That the truth was in him and that he walked in the truth. First of all, he says in verse 3, man, the testimony I heard is they testified that the truth was in you, Gaius. I like that, that the truth is in you. The truth was actually a part of his life. You might say that the truth of God's word had become interwoven into the fabric of this man's life. He spent so much time ingesting and digesting the truth of the word of God, it literally became just woven into the fabric of his being as a man. That as people encountered him and interacted with him, as he spoke and spent time with people, his life was so filled with God's truth, it just was evident in his life and it overflowed out of his life, the truth of the word of God. It was just filled in his life. And notice as well, secondly, he says, they also testified of you, not just that you know a lot of truth, Gaius, that's a good start, 
to have yourself be filled with the truth. But he said, they don't just testify the truth is in you. But he says as well, verse 3, but they're telling me that you walk in the truth. You don't just know all the spiritual facts. You're actually living in genuine spiritual fellowship with God and living for the Lord. You're putting those things into practice. You're walking in the truth. Gaius lived out and followed the truth of God's word in his way of living. He put into practice the truths that he found, the truths that he learned in the word of God. That when he learned the truth, he applied the truth. He lived out the truth. He submitted to it in his life. What guided this man's way of thinking and his view about things was the truth of God's word. What directed and governed his decisions and his conduct was the truth of Scripture in every matter. That's a great way to live your life. To be someone who doesn't allow your personal feelings or thoughts or your human reasoning or the patterns of the world around you to dictate how you view things, what your ideas or values are or your personal responses, but rather to have your life filled with the truth, but more than that, governed by the truth, guided by the truth, that it's the truth of God's word that you actually put into practice. This man submitted all things in his life to the authority of the truth of God's word. And by faith and love for the Lord, he lived in submission to it. He lived the truth. He walked out the truth. And again, can I just say there of Gaius, verse three and four, more good character traits, more good conduct to imitate in our lives that we would be people that would have lives that are filled with the truth of god's word listen we're all filling our heads with stuff tv and social media and everything's we're looking at and everybody's filling their noggin with stuff their ears their eye gate we're all we're all filling our And so often, I mean, let's just be very candid. Half the time, we're filling ourselves with junk. Just junk, man. And would to God that to a greater degree would say, Lord, I want to be more filled with the truth because the world's spewing so much error, so much confusion, so much distortion. Lord, I want to be filled with the truth. I want to spend time investing and depositing the truth of God's word into my heart and soul and mind, consistently digesting it so it becomes a part of the fabric of my being. That literally the truth of God's word is so interwoven into my life that that error is just quickly identified. And it's more quickly resisted because that's wrong. Because I know what the truth says. And that when I interact with people, that the truth would just flow out of our lives. That people would see that we're filled with the truth. And not just that, that we wouldn't just know the truth intellectually, but like guys too, we would walk in the truth. Walking in it. Not just being a bunch of Bible, academia, intellectual. Well, I got my PhD in bibliology. I don't care. And most people don't either. But when you walk in the truth, that's when that's the real deal there that guy walks the truth man he obeys the bible you know i had a pastor friend of mine one time she was there was a gal that was going back and forth between our two churches and causing a bunch of issues he finally clipped it she came up to one time and she was spewing saying all this stuff and she was just causing havoc in both fellowships going back and forth and she said something you know wow look at this in the word of god he just looked right in the face and he said how about you obey the word of god And until you're ready to obey the word of God, I don't care what you know about it. Live it. 
<laughs> Walk it out, man. A lot of Christians, we love to listen to it and to hear it and to read it and to quote it and to preach it. We have to live it. We're supposed to walk in the truth. That is the crux of the matter, that we would walk in the truth. And John says when he heard, notice, that report from other believers who visited, John says, man, I rejoiced greatly when I heard you were walking in the truth. In fact, look at verse 4. He says, in fact, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in in truth this so blessed john's heart john probably is using an analogy there for gaius as sort of a spiritual son in the faith and like he was a spiritual father maybe he's the one that led gaius to the lord and helped mentor and raise him up spiritually john's role of ministering uh, to him he sort of came in like a son to john like a child in a parent relationship like a spiritual father and and john as this older man spiritually having ministered to others he, he had a heart he wanted to see his spiritual children grow he wanted to see them do well and develop and prosper spiritually and when one of them did it was such a blessing he said man i have no greater joy than when i see one of my children walking in the truth and i'll tell you to some degree i think we can all hopefully relate to that maybe as a parent with our biological children for those of us who have children there is no greater joy, man. I don't care if they're the president of the United States or they pick up trash with their bare hands. I don't care who they're, what they become, how. But if they walk in the truth, man, nothing better, nothing better than to to hear that as well. You know, somebody that else, you know, to hear that they're walking in the truth because they can fake the funk in our house. I mean, right? We all know that. But somebody else that knows your kid and they see him on the football field or the soccer field or in their school and they tell you. Yeah, I remember years ago when I was doing a chapel service where the girls were attending school at and one of the teachers pulled me aside afterward and she just you know, gave me a great compliment towards my three kids and so on and so forth. Didn't say anything about my message at the chapel service, but that didn't surprise me because that probably stunk like most do. <laughs> She said, hey, but she said, oh, I just wanted to say to you, and I thought she was going to say, good message today. You know, like, wow, that really touched my heart. <laughs> I just want to say to you, she said, you're raising some really good daughters. And you can tell they really love the Lord and are serving the Lord. And I said to her, ma'am, that is the greatest compliment that you could ever give to me. Amen. That's wonderful to see them walk in the truth. And even if it's not with biological children, if you've led a person to Christ, maybe you've led somebody to the Lord and, and you're kind of discipling them, you want to see them grow and, and you see them grow or you hear they're doing well, man, that's like, wow, that person I led to the Lord, they're walking it out now. They're still living for Jesus and there's just such a blessing to hear that kind of a thing. Or if you minister to any group of people, a small Bible study or children's ministry or youth group, ministry, a lot of it, it is like parenting. It's, it really is. And it's just so rewarding to hear this kind of thing. What is admirable here, I think a trait in John, beyond Gaius, that should be imitated. Notice what brought John his greatest joy and fulfillment. It was not how he was doing financially or his physical health or is everything in life going the way I want it to. Or my, what brought John the greatest joy and fulfillment was when other people did well spiritually. And I think, man, that is a great, great, admirable trait in a person there. Evaluate this morning again, if you would. Do inventory. Be honest. What typically tends to give you the greatest joy in your life? 
What do you find the most fulfillment in? Maybe it's like your work project and then you just get so caught up and it's like, wow, look how awesome that came out. And, you, and just, there are certain things that we find our joy, our fulfillment, our sense of purpose in. Can I ask, how excited and enthusiastic are you when you see people make spiritual progress? When you see God working in someone's life? That's a great thing to imitate in John there. That we'd find great pleasure, joy, and fulfillment when we see people doing well in the things of the Lord. That that would be, wow, man, that makes me feel great. Yeah, everything else, but, but wow, that person's doing well spiritually. That family's doing better spiritually. That person's walking, with, and we'd find fulfillment in that very beautiful thing. That would be our greatest desire, if you would, in our lives. Verse 5, he then says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and strangers who've borne witness of your love for the ch- before the church. And if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Now, let me just briefly give the overall setting and context of what John, again, is further commending Gaius, his friend, for here in this section. As we stated in last week's study of Second John, during the first few centuries of the early church, the gospel message and New Testament doctrine was predominantly taken from place to place, region to region, by traveling evangelists, traveling teachers, kind of like missionaries. They would journey to different areas, spreading the word of God. And as they traveled around like that, again, there were no hotel chains where you could rent a private room at the end of the day. What there were was just public inns. And these public inns were known to basically just, uh, you know, honestly, they were, they were like flea bag, rat hole, bad places. There was prostitution and drinking and carousing, and they were known for these things, these inns. So obviously, no Christian typically would feel comfortable in that environment, nor want to be exposed to that temptation while they're out traveling around. Or have the reputation question if they were lodging at one of these inns as they journeyed around. So for that reason, hospitality among Christians became very common as they traveled in these days. Hospitality was a very signature thing of believers in the early church customarily to take in these missionaries, these traveling teachers, these evangelists. The loving thing was to inconvenience yourself and share your home and provide them a meal and some safe Christian fellowship where they could have someone to dwell with comfortably. And it was customary even to give them some support and assistance as they went forward on their journey, moving out to the next place they would serve the Lord because they went out for Jesus' namesake. And so you were participating in that work of the Lord by just helping them in that way. And it appears that Gaius, from these verses, was a very kind and hospitable man. And it seems that he was known for helping many people in this way. It says here that people knew him, verse 5, that he was taking in the brethren, notice, and even showing hospitality, it says, to strangers also. So Gaius apparently was just an unselfish man who loved the Lord. He was willing to be inconvenienced personally to help out others. And he had a reputation, as John commends him here, for offering hospitality and support to both traveling Christians in general and these teachers and missionaries and evangelists as they were moving around, as well as even, it seems, 
perhaps lodging at times strangers, maybe those even who were unsaved that might have just been passing through and rather than them going to the inn and carrying on, he would look at it as a gospel opportunity, invite them to stay in his home. As they'd pass through his area, he'd receive people into his home offering lodging and meals and, and Christian safe fellowship. And even according to verse 6, notice he would assist them forward on their journey. Verse 6 says he sent them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So he, he tried to help them go forward in a successful way. He did what he could to maybe give them some provisions or financial support of something of that nature. This was just a man who used, look at it, he used his home and he used his own personal resources as a tool for ministry and to love people practically. Just a very practical expression of love, giving them a temporary place to stay for a few days and serving them in a very loving and hospitable way. And I look to that and I think, what a beautiful and practical way to show Christian love in a very simplistic, down-to-earth, helpful manner. Gaius was a good example of Christian kindness and hospitality. And look, I understand, especially in today's day and age, I understand we have to be wise and safe. I ain't taking no strangers into my home. Some Christians I met are pretty strange. And I understand we have to use discernment and wisdom, but let's not take that to an extreme as an excuse for just selfishness sometimes, that we don't want to be inconvenienced. Because I'll tell you something, I think all of us at times may be able to do something like this. We may be able on occasion to you know, help or bless someone and maybe use our home, maybe use our home or our resources or whatever as a house of ministry in some way to bless someone. To let them lodge for a day or two or a few or whatever it may be and provide a meal for them. And I think we should just pray. And I want to say, be open to the Holy Spirit's leading. Don't just instantly, oh, it's just not safe. And I think we need to find a balance. There may be times God may want to use us. God will protect us and take care of us. I'm not saying be foolish, but there may be times like Gaius here who's commended for this, that God may want to use us in a similar way. Now, as he's commended for his good reputation, notice as well in these verses a few other good character traits or qualities that are good for us to imitate. We notice in verse 5, another beautiful thing about him, we know that Gaius was a faithful man. Look at verse 5 again. He says, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and strangers. I love that statement there. I have it underlined in my Bible where he says, You do faithfully whatever you do. I like that. The idea there is whatever thing that Gaius did to serve the Lord, or to help people, he did it faithfully. He gave his best effort to it. He saw it worthy of doing it thoroughly, of doing it fully and completely and making sure he followed through with it to complete the task. He did it in a way where he was loyal and committed. When he entered into some work, some service, whatever he did, when he entered into something that he was going to do, he was reliable. He finished it. He made sure to be thorough and give his best effort to it. And again, what a great character trait to imitate and pattern in our lives and conduct. That whatever you do, whatever you do, do it faithfully. Are you a student? Oh, yeah, I'm a student. I, it's school. Oh. I 
don't envy you anymore. But whatever you do, do it faithfully. At your job, whatever you do, do it faithfully. If you're going to serve the Lord in some way or, or enter into some ministry commitment or offer it, do it faithfully. Don't just do it half-heartedly. Do it faithfully. You're going to vacuum a carpet? Vacuum every square foot of the carpet. Do it faithfully. If it's worth doing and doing for the Lord, do it faithfully. What a beautiful trade to imitate in our lives, to, to carry over. And let me say, because that's what matters most to Jesus, ladies and gentlemen. It really is. Remember, the highest commendation of Jesus is what? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's the highest commendation. Good and faithful servant. Notice also Gaius had a reputation for being a caring man because we see in verse 6 that people were bearing witness of what? They bore witness of his love among the church. So he had a really good, admirable reputation among the church, the brothers in Christ, and he was known and spoken of well by people. And particularly, he was known in this reputation for being a man who had great love for people. Gaius was someone who really was concerned about people. He was just a guy who, who really cared about how other people were doing and he cared enough to help in ways at times and he practiced just serving people and finding practical ways. Hey, what would help? How can I show love for people in a practical way? And again, what a beautiful picture, a great thing again to imitate and copy in our lives, to become a caring and loving person. To be someone like Gaius here who has a genuine interest and concern for how other people are doing and for us to slow down enough sometimes in our busy rat race to actually realize you can still be responsible, work, pay your bills, live your chaotic American life and slow down enough once in a while to, to just pay attention to I wonder how he's doing. I wonder how she's doing. I wonder how this person I just talked to is doing. And, and to show love for people. And to take the time to care about how somebody's doing, to be concerned, to take our focus enough off to find out how someone's doing and find ways to show care. And maybe it's just practical love like Guy is here to help or support. Keep in mind, what was he doing? The guy wasn't preaching sermons. He was opening his home up and being hospitable to traveling people. And feeding them meals. He had a cooking ministry. I mean, he just was doing practical things. And here's the thing, bottom line. We may not all be able to preach. We may not all be able to sing. And some of us certainly may not sing in front of a microphone. It might not be good. <laughs> but we can all love people. Amen. And we can all just find practical ways to love by just being a servant. And just sowing practice. And can I just dare to say, I think that may honestly be the most needed form of ministry. To just lovingly and practical ways help somebody. Serve somebody. Just show love and unselfishness. How did Jesus show the full expression of his love? Read John 3.13. Or John chapter 13. He, he just served people. Practical expression. That was how he showed his love. Maybe we ought to ask the Lord, all of us, Lord, give me more love for people. And Lord, show me ways that I can serve people in practical avenues of love. Thirdly, we notice as well about Gaius that Gaius was a generous man personally. 
He cared about people, but he also was a generous man because speaking of the departure of those traveling guests and teachers that were lodging in his home as they went about for the namesake of Jesus, spreading the gospel, teaching the word of God. Look what it again says in verse six. He says to him, Gaius, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. So John reminds him that these people who were traveling around, many of them, teachers and evangelists, missionaries and so forth, going around spreading the gospel in different regions, moving through. He says, look, these who were genuinely spiritually called of the Lord, a genuinely called missionary or church planner or evangelist or teacher, he says there in verse uh, 6, or excuse me, verse 7, these went forth, notice, for his namesake. That is for Jesus' namesake, John's reminding him. What he's doing is reminding Gaius, look, these people didn't go out for their own sake because they like to travel. They didn't go out because they enjoy moving about to new locations. He says they went out because they were sent out by the Spirit of the Lord. They went out for Jesus' sake, not for their own sake. Quite honestly, many of them that were sent out by the Lord to serve were making personal sacrifices of their own lives. They were taking risks to step away from comfort and step into a whole new territory and, and, and kind of embrace that for the Lord's sake. Notice he adds in verse 7 that these who went out that were genuine were taking nothing from the Gentiles. That's a reference to the, those who were pagan or unbelievers. And what that's saying there is they didn't solicit funds from the unsaved world. They weren't asking or looking for the unsaved world to support them. They didn't set up a GoFundMe account for contributions to do their work for the Lord because maybe God might not provide. Instead, they were sent by the Lord to do the Lord's work so they trusted that the Lord would supply and that he would sustain them and that he would support them as they obeyed and went. And listen, the Bible teaches that the Lord's work and the Lord's workers are supported by the Lord's people. Not the world. God help us if we think we need Egypt to finance the kingdom of God. When God guides, God provides. And the way that God provides is his work and his workers are supplied by his people. That's why John's encouraging Gaius here, saying, Gaius, what you're doing is right. That's good what you're doing, he says in verse 6. He says, if you send them forward in a manner worthy of God, then, then you do well when you do that. You're doing, that pleases the Lord. When you supply his workers and you help contribute to his work, that pleases the Lord. Jesus said in Luke 10, his laborers are worthy of their wages. It tells us as well in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So Gaius' financial assistance to these traveling teachers and missionaries and so forth, sending them forward in the Lord's work, helping them financially to do such, was in complete alignment with God's pattern of his work propagating in the world. So what he was doing, every time he did this, being generous or giving of his finances, he says, you're really doing well when you're doing that. And you don't have to worry about what's going to happen with your own finances because that pleases the Lord, he says. You're doing well when you do that. And listen, I think sometimes as God's people, we need to be assured that it is good 
to give to the Lord and to give to the Lord's work. Because we're by nature selfish and we're by nature greedy and by nature we also tend to be fearful that if we give to God or to God's work or to some missionary or so forth, how, how am I going to make it? How am I going to survive if I give? And we worry like that. Listen, the reality is this. Here, this elderly follower of Christ, John, is an aged man. He tells this younger man, look, when you give to the Lord's work, you do well. You do well. Romans 10 tells us, how can they hear without a preacher? And it says, how can they preach unless they are sent? Sent by us as God's people. Sending those into the harvest field, supporting the work of the Lord. And look, Philippians chapter 4, the verse we all love about God's provision. Let me just say, that verse is given in context of utilizing your money as an act of worship to support the work of the kingdom of God. It's in that context that Paul says, and my God shall supply all your need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Let me say two things. If you're given to the Lord's work in managing your money God's way, you don't have nothing to worry about. God is going to supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches. You can't outgive God. You don't have to worry. You're doing what's well. Keep managing your money God's way. And if you're someone who's not managing your money God's way, be careful claiming that verse because it is somewhat starting to take it out of context. That verse is given to those who use God's money God's way. And it's an assurance that Paul said, and my God will supply your needs. As you helped me and supplied me on my missions trip, Paul says, my God's going to supply all of your need. So again, important to realize this thing. Now, perhaps Gaius was growing weary and well-doing, and maybe this is where verse 8 comes from as we close. He says, we therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So John encourages Gaius, keep doing that good work and helping and supporting and receiving these travelers. He says, Gaius, despite how you might feel at times, and maybe you worry or you're concerned because of you know, what you're doing, these men, he says, they've gone out to do the Lord's work. And he says, honestly, when you partner together with them, he says, you ought to receive and support and show hospitality because you're functioning like a co-laborer with them. You're working together with the truth as you help and get involved in their lives as a brother in Christ. Now, we'll see in the rest of the letter next time why Gaius might have been doubting what he was doing. But be that as it may, notice one final principle with me, if you would, of a good attribute again in Gaius, and that is this. He was a man who was humble and cooperative in spirit. He was humble and cooperative in spirit. This was a guy among the body of Christ in the church who was willing to do whatever was needed to partner with other Christians to be a fellow worker for the truth. He was willing to just work together for the advancement of the truth. He didn't need to be the traveling missionary over to Africa. He didn't need to be the church planner in you know, Colorado or the guy in the pulpit. He just wanted to do whatever he could to help the truth get out there. He just wanted to do whatever was necessary, whatever was needed to assist and participate in the work of God's truth impacting lives. And I think this is a beautiful example. However he could do some part, he was glad to play that role. He realized the work of the Lord was a collective effort of many different functioning parts and he was willing to do whatever is needed. Lord, help us. 
to imitate that attitude, man. To realize the work of the Lord, it's a collective work, and to just have a humble, cooperative spirit that would be willing to do whatever may be needed. Whatever may be needed. Whatever may be needed to work for the advancement of the truth of the kingdom of God. Hey, I'll cooperate. I'm willing to do that part. What is it? What needs to be done? What part can I do? You know, remember, it's often been said before, there is no limit to what the Lord is able to do through a group of people willing to serve together and no one cares who gets the glory. Something really wonderful in that. You know, we're all going to imitate something. Lord, help us to imitate what's good. Let's stand together. Let's pray.